Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to I'm Listening Bay Area, a program bringing you stories of mental health struggles and perseverance from right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Just ahead of National Suicide Prevention Week, KCBS is joining a national campaign to raise awareness around mental health. So over the next hour, we're going to be hearing stories of neighbors helping neighbors to overcome mental health challenges and thrive. Everything seemed to be going fine, and I had no clue that he was hearing voices again. Then what am I here for? What am I good for? What's the point of living? The anger inside of me made me want to, like, literally punch a wall. Our main goal here, I think, is really to listen and to help people empower themselves. To me, that just shows, like, the community, nobody wanted to sit at home. Everyone just wanted to be together. I'm Keith Menconi, and as you just heard right there, we have got a whole lot of people to hear from this hour, a lot to get to. So to help guide us along in this conversation, I'm joined by someone who's literally written the book on mental health support in the Bay Area. That would be Eli Merritt. He is a San Francisco-based psychiatrist and consultant who spends his days helping people find their own course to care, which means helping them navigate the Bay Area's often fragmented mental health care system. Dr. Merritt, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Keith. My pleasure. And you really are just the kind of person that we want for the program today, because that is the focus of what we're going to be doing over the next hour, hearing all the ways that Bay Area residents are finding help and giving help to one another to show that no matter who you are, someone is there to listen. And that's the name of the program. Once again, I'm listening Bay Area. So many stories to get to lined up in the coming hours. Our uh, reporters have been hard at work over the last few weeks throughout the Bay Area to gather them together. But before we dive in, uh, let's tell our listeners a little bit about the scope of the problem that we're confronting, why it is that we are dedicating an hour of time to this specific issue. Uh, Dr. Merritt, suicide risk really is becoming quite a challenge for many Americans. It is, I think, instinctively, uh, people understand that, but that's also reinforced by data that we know from the CDC that since 1999, we have seen across demographics a 33% rise in the rate of suicide. That is from 1999 to 2018. Also, I think quite informative is the fact that out of the top 10 causes of death in the United States, seven have been decreasing, three have been increasing, And two of the three that have been increasing are suicide at now 47,000 deaths per year and also drug overdose at 70,000 deaths per year. It's concerning, to say the least. Concerning, yeah. And in the face of these concerning numbers, uh, you have released a work that is very helpful for those trying to navigate this very fraught issue. It's called Suicide Risk in the Bay Area, a guide for families, physicians, therapists, and other professionals. And in that book, you're going to find practical advice for how you can start these difficult conversations around suicide, how you can spot the signs of depression or suicidality in people, all very important, but perhaps even more important 
important for our purposes is the work that you've done gathering together all the various different mental health resources out there in the Bay Area, whether it's a clinic or a crisis line that you can call. You've got the names and the numbers all there uh, for people to have access to. Tell our listeners a little bit about why that was so important to you to create this resource. Uh, Well, I think the reason is the only question is not how. How do we talk about suicide risk or what are the different types of treatment available? But in addition to the how, there's the who. I think it's an incredibly important question in our fragmented mental health uh, system. And so a very significant part, I believe, of emerging from mental suffering, depression, hopelessness, suicide risk, and other illnesses is really reaching out to others for help. And so the book, as you alluded to, is somewhat of a how-to guide with regard to mental health and, in particular, hopelessness and suicide risk. But there on the same pages are 300 different resources of individuals who are out there, many of which are 24-7, who want to help, whether it is the patient who's suffering or a friend or family member who wants to help but feels paralyzed and doesn't know what to do. And that's a really important message to get out there is that there are so many people that are ready and able and willing and eager in many cases uh, to help people going through a tough time. Let's dig into some of the stories that our reporters have put together for us right now. The name of the program, once again, is I'm Listening and Matching with that title. This first story demonstrates that sometimes in a moment of crisis, the thing that we need most in the whole world is someone who can really and truly Listen to us. Here's KCBS reporter Holly Kwan with stories from some of the people doing the important work of listening here in the Bay Area. You may not notice them on the sidewalk at the Golden Gate Bridge, or maybe you don't want to see them, but Maria Manayer does. Though so depressed, they're thinking about jumping. Manayer, a Pleasanton police lieutenant, is founder of Bridge Watch Angels, a volunteer group that patrols the bridge looking to intervene. One thing about being in law enforcement is oftentimes we get there too late. So the call for service happens when someone uh, finds their loved one already deceased. And it's a very helpless feeling that we have to go there and see the horrific aftermath that these families have to endure. So this is really just an opportunity to find a way to be proactive. There are a lot of people that are in despair that don't want to die. They come to the bridge, they don't want to die. They'd want to end their pain. And there is a clear distinction of what that is. And there's really that opening, that opportunity that we can leverage to connect with people. Every major holiday, she takes a group of 100 trained angels to the bridge. They don't touch people. They don't reach around the rail. They're an extra set of eyes and ears to watch and listen. Specifically, when it comes to the bridge, we look for people who are alone. Because generally speaking, uh, when when people come to the bridge, they are with loved ones, family members, or they're tourists, or maybe they're engaging in some sort of exercise or bike riding with a group. Uh, We also look at people who are standing or sitting in one spot for long periods of time, maybe poor body posture, disheveled appearance or clothing, uh, inappropriate for the weather. Uh, One thing very noticeable is this sort of switching directions and pacing back and forth mid-span for no apparent reason, and also an abnormal reaction to your presence. So volunteers are encouraged to say hello, and when we're out there on holidays, to give them a holiday, positive holiday wish and see how do they react? Are they irritable, nervous, or anxious? Uh, Do we see them visibly distraught or crying? And then after doing that assessment, we determine whether an indirect or more direct approach is appropriate. So like, how do they react? Did you say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays? Diverting their eyes, looking down, 
showing emotion that would be uh, uh, really consistent with somebody who's in despair or ignoring our presence altogether and having that thousand yard stare uh, or back and forth head turning as they're looking over the railing into the water. Outside Dana Whitmer's East Bay home is a hypnotic fountain that induces calm. Inside, next to the fireplace, is a photo of her son, Matthew, who in 2007 jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge. He was diagnosed eight years previously with schizophrenia um, at the age of 12. And he had gone through all the challenges. He was doing really well. You know, got back in school, graduated, and then he was working on massage therapy. Everything seemed to be going fine. We'd have um, little huddles in the morning getting ready. And I had no clue that he was hearing voices again. He, he would tell different people different things, but if they were all in one room, it would have been figured out. Whether it's the stigma that comes with mental illness that kept Matthew from reaching out, Whitmer says she was always watching his moods. Initially, I was I, pretty much in shock, but then I got mad. How could he not tell me? You know, we had had such an open relationship about his mental health. And all I could think was he didn't want to go back on the medication. He really hated it. And he didn't want to go back to the hospital. This had happened on a Thursday, and we think that on Monday he had made a previous attempt. Because when we got to the car at the bridge, um, we're trying to get a clue of what was going on. We opened the trunk, and there was a full set of clothes, totally wet soaking wet. And we're going, this is weird. He couldn't have come back out and put all these clothes in. But they smelled of oil. So that was when the uh, tanker hit the Bay Bridge. So they think he tried jumping from somewhere in the East Bay, like the Berkeley Pier. Now Whitmer runs the Bridge Rail Foundation, instrumental in getting a safety net approved at the Golden Gate. She worries that technology, while making it easier to stay in touch, is also isolating people. People like Michael Johnson, who goes by the name CW. He was a hoarder, stuffing so much in his San Francisco SRO, he was in danger of getting thrown out. My emotions were attached to my stuff. And that if my house was cluttered, my mind was cluttered, my spirit was cluttered. And so being able to get support around decluttering, it also helped me declutter some of my mental health issues. Now he works for the Mental Health Association of San Francisco, a nonprofit that runs a warm line, not a hotline. The warm line is to reach people before they achieve crisis levels. Our main goal here, I think, is really to listen and to help people empower themselves. So our, our, our goal is really not to be therapists or not to be judges. Our number one goal is to listen, to help them find their own solutions. And to dispel the myths around mental health. Executive Director Mark Salazar cringes at reality TV shows that spotlight hoarding or obesity as entertainment. He says they show people as freaks rather than fighting for their lives. They just present mental health as like this simple thing that you can meditate away, go take a vacation, go go jogging, or go on a hike. And it's those things that annoy me or kind of like as an agency, that's not what in reality we understand mental health is. It's this interconnected model of everything you do in life. If you have a broken leg, of course you're going to feel depressed. But people forget all that stuff. They're like, oh, no, you can just meditate for five minutes. You'll be great. It's, that in reality is so obscene and absurd. Holly Kwan, KCBS. 
bringing it back into studio now. I want to remind everyone that this is I'm Listening Bay Area, a program dedicated to understanding the mental health challenges faced by Bay Area residents. I'm Keith Manconi, joined once again in studio by San Francisco-based psychiatrist Eli Merritt. You know, I understand that we are dealing today with some challenging topics here. So if you are having a hard time, of course, there are so many ways to find support. We just heard there from the San Francisco Warm Line, which is an excellent resource. It can be reached by calling 415-421-1880. Again, that's 415-421-1880 to reach the San Francisco Warm Line. Now, Eli Merritt, I think that there are some interesting threads that tie both of those organizations that we just heard there uh, together in a way. You know, we heard from the Bridgewatch Angels. We also heard from the Warm Line. Very different kinds of work in a way. One's over the phone. One's very much in person, very much in the immediate moment of crisis. But the thing that ties them both together is they're both about listening Mm -hmm. and being able to talk to somebody that's going through a tough time. And there's even a term for that in uh, mental health circles talk about it. Uh, Tell us about that term and why it's so important. I think you've made a really remarkable point uh, that deserves to be underscored, and that is, yes, the recommendation is often to talk about it from very many uh, suicide prevention organizations, including the dominant theme in my book. But at the heart of it, that encourages people to approach someone and begin a conversation where the essence is really listening and expressing empathy. And then another core piece, which is validating what you're hearing from the other person. So there's many ways to talk about it. I think what really stands out in what we heard about the Warm Line and the Bridgewater, Bridgewatch Angels is that suicide does not result from an irreversible desire to die. That was emphasized. It really is the product of pain and hopelessness. And by talking with someone who is expressing compassion and concern, really one thing that's happening is there's an experience by another person of compassion and deep commitment to help. And I believe that those two things, not in all cases, but they can be truly, truly transformative in someone's life. Just the feeling of compassion, not providing solutions. That is one of our deepest instincts when we are confronted by something that provokes fear within us is to provide solutions. But better is commitment to help. And compassion. And that can also be a hurdle for the person who's trying to provide support in some way is if you have that feeling that I need to be providing solutions, it might stop you from starting that conversation in the first place. I think that's incredibly important. We really, the, the movement towards controlling or directing another person is often not welcomed. So I've had an acronym that I've used for some 10 years now, which is LEV. And so I have recourse to this frequently. Listen, empathize and validate. And even if that means validating, I hear you saying you're hopeless and want to die, then just stop and listen again. It's hard to do, but really people want to feel like someone understands them and is not trying to change their internal pain and confusion, but is willing to listen and help. And very briefly, I think another theme of the program that we're going to be developing throughout the hour is the fact that these are things that you can get better at. I mean, it can seem overwhelming to enter this sort of a conversation, but this is not some innate ability that some people are born with. You you really can get the resources to become a better listener and provide better support. That is correct. I would say the largest school of thought uh, with regard to how to be a good listener is called active listening. So in a a Google search, many sources would come up there. 
But yeah, it's remarkable how hard it is to sit with another person's pain and particularly hopelessness because it triggers in us all manner of complex emotions within ourselves. So it is some, I don't think anyone ever accomplishes the goal or end to be a good listener. It's a work in progress that we should all be focused on as part of lifelong learning. All right. With all that in mind, lots of good points there to think about as we continue along this programming hour, which once again is I'm Listening Bay Area. Up next, who do you turn to when your whole world is falling apart? We're talking here about disasters, whether they're man-made or caused by humans. They don't just put people's lives at risk. They can also deal out serious mental trauma as well. That was the experience of many Gilroy residents in the aftermath of the Garlic Festival shooting in late July. KCBS reporter Margie Schaefer spoke with some of those residents about their path to healing. Sound and images following the shooting were captured on cell phone video. What's going on? What's going on? Is there fire? Maddox Scariot told CMAP TV she'd been volunteering at the Gilroy Rotary Hub and Pub wine tent with her sister and heard the pop, pop, pop and knew it wasn't fireworks. But it took some time to get around the idea of a shooting at a festival she describes as being like Christmas for Gilroy. It felt surreal. It felt like everything was happening in slow motion. It, and then the fear of like my niece is somewhere out there. My sister was panicked. They told us to get under the tables. Her niece let them know she was okay, but another friend was shot. Justin, who lived with me for a couple years, was shot five times. And so as I was waiting for the buses, I'm also waiting to hear if he was okay. And um, he was. Meanwhile, Mary Hallam, who lives a mile from the festival, tells CMAP she learned about the shooting after receiving a text message from a friend in New York. Then she started paying attention. So on one hand, I'd be watching the news, and on the other ear, I'd be hearing the sirens. I'd be hearing the, the helicopters. Honestly, whether you were there or not, our bodies respond to trauma in the same way whether we were there or whether we just heard someone telling the story. Melissa Santos is Senior Director of Community Solutions, a behavioral health organization in Gilroy. Our bodies go into that flight-fight response even when we're, we're hearing the story. So that's not to undermine that certainly being there, the victims who died died or who were shot themselves certainly have a different experience than, for instance, you or I who heard about it or live here. But all of us can expect to go through some sort of trauma response continuum. Robbie Felice had been cooking calamari in Gourmet Alley. It was just very hard to sleep because you can't help but wonder the what ifs. What if I didn't leave the festival 10 minutes early before the shooting happened? The truth of the matter is that we could only focus in the present moment. We can't change what happened, and certainly we need to value the feelings that we're feeling and try not to plan too far in the future. Initially, the Gilroy shooting and response was a crisis situation. Mental health agencies and the Red Cross mobilized, offering services at the high school on the other side of town. A shelter was set up for vendors whose cars, cell phones, and backpacks couldn't be accessed because they were part of an FBI investigation drop-in counseling was offered. So when I had a dad sitting next to me in tears because he just didn't know how to make this better for his kids who were there, it was, we're safe in this moment and we can promise him safety in this moment here in this room right now. And we can make agreements as a family about how are you gonna check in with each other to let one another know when you need to talk. Talking is not what Robbie Felice felt like doing initially.
I was just kind of in a different dimension. I was very quiet, very, I was calm, but that, the anger inside of me made me want to like literally punch a wall. Hallam and Scariot felt pain as well with the tainting of a touchstone event. Just being so sad that it happened. How could, they, how could it happen in our little community? I mean, the garlic festival, so many memories are attached to it. The shooting occurred before school started. Teachers in Gilroy and Morgan Hill were given training in recognizing and dealing with trauma. Two counselors were placed at each elementary, middle, and high school for the first week of school. Many students volunteered or attended the festival. One team of youth who were put into the ice chest, sort of the ice, because for safety, small spaces are freaking some of them out right now because it's triggering that trauma memory. Fireworks or loud pops will do the same for others. Santos says it's important not to isolate. Felice found comfort in being with others. Going to that candlelight vigil in downtown Gilroy was probably the biggest relief out of that entire week that I've gotten. It was amazing how many of the thousands of people that showed up for that vigil. And to me, that just shows like the community, nobody wanted to sit at home. Everyone just wanted to be together. Going forward, people may still be impacted by the shooting. Santos says, look for the signs. Are you someone that's usually really outgoing and connecting with your friends and you're finding that you don't want to go? Are you having trouble sleeping? Do you not have an appetite? Who are you talking to about these things? It, that doesn't mean that you're suddenly ha have a diagnosis, but certainly means reach out and talk to your primary care physician, talk to a counselor or therapist, start with a friend if that's what you're comfortable with to say, I'm kind of still not feeling like myself. And I wonder if this is normal or I wonder if maybe there's something else going on because certainly PTSD is real. And it's treatable. Hallam says many in the community want to help. We're there for them and we will continue to be there. This is not a short-term thing. I know one group is planning their, their program for February and it's going to be on forgiveness. As for the future of the Garlic Festival? We have to have another Garlic Festival. Felice's grandfather Val, dubbed the godfather of garlic, helped co-found the Gilroy Garlic Festival. I believe my grandpa up in heaven right now would agree with that. And those three kids are up in heaven with my grandpa telling them that, you know, we need to have another guard festival. I believe next year's guard festival will be the strongest one ever. Those still feeling the impacts of the shooting should know they are not alone, and they're encouraged to take positive steps to cope. Margie Schaefer, KCBS. Once again, much of the audio you heard there gathered by CMAP TV, a community media group in Gilroy. Bringing it back into studio now and joining me here, San Francisco-based psychiatrist Eli Merritt. He's the author of the book, Suicide Risk in the Bay Area, a guide for families, physicians, therapists, and other professionals. Now, the response to the Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting was remarkable, just for the hundreds and hundreds of people that came together, supporting one another in their time of need. And as we just heard, many of those people who came out were mental health professionals. But we actually see some version of this after pretty much every disaster here in California, whether it's a flood, whether it's fires. We saw many examples of this actually after the wine country fires back in 2017. And so what this all says to me, Dr. Merritt, is that there really are so many people out there that want to provide 
support. They want to make sure other people feel cared for. But the flip side of that is that when you are in a dark place, when you are really having a tough time yourself, it can be easy to lose sight of that fact. Uh, that's very easy to lose sight of uh, because, of course, uh, what what happens with depression as it progresses towards suicidal thinking and then suicidal behaviors is first a step into hopelessness. And so it's the hopelessness that really blocks the often the movement towards step reaching out to others for help. And I think in this report, what stands out is so important is really the continuum of response that people have and the importance, again, here emphasized of listening and offering help not necessarily trying to pigeonhole a person. One size does not fit all. If people do not like cookie cutter medicine, they don't want to be squeezed into a doctor's box. So it sounds like the real talents of this group of individuals at Community Solutions is arrive, listen, show empathy, and offer to help rather than necessarily uh, direct everyone down the same pathway. And another thing that is lost very quickly after a disaster like this, we were told by a number of mental health experts, is that feeling of safety. You're robbed of that feeling of safety in this place that you called your home and you thought was your safe place to go. And in a way, I think having that mass turnout, that mass show of community solidarity can be healing in and of itself just to see so many people coming together. And uh, is that a theme that you think it's important to emphasize in your work, just emphasizing that there are many helpers out there? I I think that's certainly an underlying uh, theme of the book. And sort of uh, borrowing from what you've said, we really, uh, even statistically, or research has shown that we have a breakdown of community and that this is one of the many fa- one of many factors that are contributing to a greater sense of despair among individuals, more loneliness, uh, more isolation. Uh, one good study demonstrated that since the 80s, this is these are self-report studies, that the degree of loneliness has doubled from 20% of people reporting loneliness now to 40% of people. So I just think that's an important issue. If breakdown of community, it's also a helpful way to get back to safety and security is as a pathway of recovery is to get oneself into a healthy and healing community of some kind. Mm. And that can be all too difficult to find at times. But as we're hopefully going to demonstrate throughout the course of this show, such communities are out there and uh, ready to offer support. We are going to continue on, though. You've got it tuned right now to KCBS 106.9 AM 740. This is I'm Listening Bay Area, a program bringing you stories of mental health resilience in the Bay Area. Joining us for this hour is San Francisco-based psychiatrist Eli Merritt. For our next story... Young people are especially vulnerable to the challenges posed by mental health struggles. Suicide is now thought to be the second leading cause of death for Americans between the age of 10 and 34. And what's more, some communities in the Bay Area have had more than their share of tragedy. So KCBS reporter Jim Taylor brings us this story about how some of those communities are responding to that tragedy by pulling together. The mental health of our teenage population is being scrutinized like never before, particularly here in the Bay Area, where two clusters of teen suicide in Palo Alto claimed the lives of nine teenagers, many on these Caltrain tracks. Since then, the schools, the students, the community getting proactive about teen mental health. When you have students who are your peers who are taking their life, it's not something that you can just take lightly. Meghna Singh just graduated from Gun High, where it became an all-too-common experience to come to school and have your teacher read 
the letter. My freshman, sophomore, and junior year, at least once, I had to listen to this statement that's read at the very start of the class period if there is a suicide. The fact that I've had to listen to so many of those letters, it honestly breaks my heart to have to, to think about walking into that class and knowing that this letter is going to be read or not knowing that it's going to be read and you just show up to class and that's the first thing that you hear. It's, it's really hard. Hard for the teacher as well. And then I'm 24 years old. I mean, I have a master's degree in education, but we did not learn how to address suicides. This is not part of the curriculum in graduate school. She's one of the featured teachers in a documentary about Palo Alto's suicide clusters. So is this student. In the five years that I've been living here, I know of seven students at Gunn High School and Palo Alto High School who have committed suicide. Caltrain reacting with some suicide prevention measures. I definitely support the measures that they're taking. I've seen different signage where train tracks are, where students are crossing. I also know that there are crossing guards who are there at the train tracks 24-7. So I really do appreciate these efforts that are going on in support of student health. But I think that also we have to kind of backtrack and make sure that in everyday life there are people who are looking out for these students so that we don't get to this point where students feel that they like want to harm themselves or potentially take their life. And Megna got involved. I personally got involved in mental health advocacy when I was in eighth grade. My brother lost his best friend to suicide and it was a, he was a part of the second suicide cluster. And so that really changed my outlook on life and I realized that there's a lot of kids in in the Bay Area who are struggling and I for one wanted to educate myself and my family about what mental health is, what are the signs and symptoms of stress and anxiety and depression. About the signs of suicidal tendencies, Dr. Patty Crisostomo, psychologist, Children's Health Council in Palo Alto. Look out for um, changes in behavior. So in terms of increased moodiness or irritability, seeming more worried, or kind of keyed up or anxious. Also, if a student is starting to make statements about not wanting to be around, uh, or if a student is starting to have urges or actions related to self, self-harm self or self-injurious behaviors like pinching themselves, cutting themselves, hitting themselves um, somewhere on their body, or hurting themselves related to suicide. Meghna Singh has been an integral member of the Teen Wellness Committee. We're made up of a group of students from all over the Bay Area. We're not just from Palo Alto. We have students from private schools, public schools, and there are some students who would commute multiple hours to get here for our bi-monthly meetings. We discuss what are the different wellness promotion efforts or suicide prevention efforts going on on each person's campus, and we kind of share ideas back and forth and suggest feedback and other events and projects that students can do. Her group, the Wellness Committee, producing a book full of anonymous quotes from kids across the country, an uncensored narrative of how they feel what they need. For example, if you go to the parent section and you look at a do's and don'ts list, we have explicitly said this is something that's helpful for a parent to say to their child, and this is something that's not as helpful for you to say. Changes at the school? Dramatic. Changes to promote less stress. There's less homework. There's more time to get it done. For the duration of a PE unit, which I think lasts about four to five weeks, um, students actually participate in a mindfulness and meditation training. So just like you would learn how to play basketball or hockey for a certain number of weeks, you learn how to meditate and do breathing exercises. Gun High School is really trying to reduce stress and 
show students what different techniques they can use to do that. Oh, wow. Is he feet? Those two waves of teen suicide in Palo Alto forever changing that community where mental health is now at the forefront for teachers, students, parents, and professionals. Making progress, treating teenage mental health. Jim Taylor, KCBS. And I've actually got the book that Jim was referring to in my hand right now. The title is Just a Thought, Uncensored Narratives on Teen Mental Health, again, containing guidance on how to speak to a young person working through a mental health struggle. And we've been talking a lot about that today, how you can improve these very important conversations that you have with people. What advice do you give to parents when they are saying, you know, it seems like my kid's going through a tough time. I don't know how to start that conversation. Well, there I think there are a variety of ways to do what we have referred to as talk about it. And I think in this case, if a parent is worried, that notices that a child is depressed or more withdrawn, and there is a true concern that the, that the child might be suicidal, might be thinking of taking their own life, that all the best uh, experts and recommenders say the same thing. Go ahead and address it directly. You can, so the first thing is to ask the question. And you can say something like, you know, whoever you're speaking to, you know, I've noticed you're more depressed and withdrawn. And I also know that when people are depressed, sometimes they have thoughts of suicide. Is that happening to you? And you, so you've asked the question, and so you've really done most of the work just there. Now resort back to listen, empathize, and validate. And then if you're there, express your feelings about what the person says. Finally, if this seems like an intimidating thing to do because you don't know what information you'll get and you won't know what to do, go ahead and do it anyway. And it probably is not going to be an acute emergency. And just digest for a while and call a suicide hotline to get help. If you find mm. information that you don't know what to do with, reach out as the parent or as the friend or other family member and directly ask for help. Mm. But at the same time, I mean, we have to acknowledge it can be a real challenge to be direct about these things, just given the stigma that's there. Well, there's so much stigma, so much shame and so much fear that sort of surround the idea of suicide in something I've described in writing as a suicide complex that, yes, we naturally are led towards uh, avoidance. And I think... You know, there's a, a lot to learn from what's happened down in Palo Alto in the report that we just heard. It really shows with great promise that culture change is possible. And I think what they've done there, they've moved from a hyper-achieving culture to a culture that I'm, I'm sure is still achieving. But from the report that we heard and what I know about the peninsula now, um, I am. it brings to mind an important thing said by Martin Luther King is how much the United States is a thing-oriented versus a person-oriented society. And maybe there's a little bit more of a movement there towards a person-oriented society rather than achievement-oriented society. I find that we are also a success-oriented society, and we need culture change to move us towards a health-oriented society. And I'll finally say something that I've said to, to a number of parents and also young adults that who are searching to be successful. I quote Maya Angelou, success is liking yourself. So detach oneself from achievement as the way to orient one's life to a great new challenge. Attach yourself to figuring out how to like yourself and everything else can flow from that rather than vice versa. 
Mm, yeah, a lot of wise words in this program today. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is I'm Listening Bay Area. And for the remainder of this hour, we're going to be taking on stories of mental health crisis and resilience in the Bay Area. Our guest is San Francisco-based psychiatrist Eli Merritt. He's the author of Suicide Risk in the Bay Area, a guide for families, physicians, therapists, and other professionals. This program, by the way, can be found in full at the KCBS website. Just look for it on kcbsradio.com. And this, once again, is part of a national campaign. You can learn more by visiting imlistening.radio.com. We're going to dive into our next story now. Well, the Bay Area is certainly a diverse place, but that extra diversity can also sometimes mean added language and cultural barriers for those seeking mental health support. KCBS's Rebecca Corral tells us how some here in the Bay Area are working to break down those barriers. Bucket number 11. Sophia Ng. For Sophia Ng, entering the Miss Asian America pageant in San Francisco was both a high point and an opportunity. My name is Sophia Ng and I'm delegate number 11. My platform is destigmatizing mental health. You have one minute to say anything you want to say to an audience who is there to listen to you. It's actually very rare that you have a moment like that in your life. Her objective, destigmatizing mental illness and normalizing therapy. To do that, Sophia Eng would have to do something that's generally not acceptable in the Chinese community. She would have to admit to the world that she struggled with mental illness early in her life. So I actually grew up here in Hong Kong, you know, grew up in a pretty traditional Chinese family. So you respect your parents, you don't talk back to them. There's that cultural lens of like, we don't talk about us having a hard time or we don't talk about our struggles. So the biggest challenge is the stigma that exists within the Asian American community is very unique, mostly because a lot of Asian Americans' core beliefs are based off of shame and honor. So you minimize the amount of shame you bring onto your family and you try to maximize, obviously, the amount of honor you bring to your family. And how I came into mental health was I had hopes and dreams of becoming a professional volleyball player one day. When I was 16, I actually got into a sports-related accident. And pretty much that accident robbed me of those dreams that I had worked my whole life for. And when you're 16 and that vulnerable, you don't really have the coping skills to realize this is a blip in your history and this is something, it's an identity that you can rebuild. You kind of get stuck in this very negative spiral. On top of that, we don't talk about how we're not doing very well to your friends or outside of the household. And that was just normal. It wasn't just within my family, but generally speaking, people didn't really get vulnerable like that socially. So I definitely spiraled. This thing that I had built my whole identity around of being an athlete, suddenly the heart and soul of that was taken away from it. Then what am I here for? What am I good for? What's the point of living? To the point where I entered a suicidal depression. And in that moment, I made the decision to try to end my life. And that was definitely the turning point also, which sounds strange, but it made me see that I need help. 
So then I saw a therapist and that definitely altered the trajectory of my life. And it's a big, big reason as to why I'm a therapist today. And I work with kids because I see how the cultural piece plays out. It's still an ongoing problem. A problem not just with Sophia Ng's Asian culture, but for many people of color. I think in almost every culture there is there is a stigma attached to suffering from a mental illness and getting treatment. Stephanie Lewis is part of the crisis team with Alameda County's Mental Health Services Division. It's culturally specific in the way the stigma is experienced. I'm African-American in my culture, in my experience, because I can't speak for the entire culture. I was always taught that mental health symptoms could be treated by relying on your religion. So when I am working with a family and they report that, I say, actually, that's how I was raised as well. And as a mental health provider, I know that you can do both at the same time. So each culture, it's always been expressed in a different way. Some individuals will go to their religious leaders. Some will go to the matriarch in the family or the patriarch to discuss mental health issues. And for some cultures, it's okay to go outside, but you show up at a primary care provider. You don't use the word mental illness. You describe it in physical symptoms. So it's different for each culture. But I do think the stigma is universal. Lewis knows this because even though she works in just one county, she navigates a universe of cultures. We have 13 programs right now that serve ethnic communities and linguistically isolated communities, and that covers 28 languages. Tracy Hazelton is a division director for mental health services in Alameda County. We have 13 programs right now that serve ethnic communities and linguistically isolated communities, and that covers 28 languages. That's the Latino community, Native American, multiple Asian and Pacific Islander communities, the Afghan community, Southeast Asian, Korean community, the African and Eritrean community. It's a wide range. With a dizzying array of cultural norms. What's acceptable in one community might be unthinkable in another, but what many of them do have in common is the isolation and loneliness that come from living in a country that doesn't feel like your own. Many of them do not speak English at all, and even very small things can cause stress. For example, learning how to enroll their children in school or learning how to take the bus. And so when you are isolated and you can't get your point across because people do not speak your language, it can one cause fear and it can also cause a sense of depression and loneliness, which can lead to additional isolation and can also escalate. Escalate to suicide, domestic violence, substance abuse, or a quiet, desperate, isolating form of despair. According According to the U.S. Office of Health and Human Services, African Americans are less likely than white people to die from suicide, but black teenagers are more likely to attempt it. American Indian women under the age of 24 have the highest suicide rate among all racial and ethnic groups. Latinos have one of the lowest suicide rates, thanks in part to strong community ties. But these ties are beginning to fray as threats against the Latino and immigrant communities in the U.S. are increasingly threatened. A lot of miscommunication happens. People may experience our services as not feeling as welcoming as we would want them to. People may end end up in care that they might not necessarily understand. Which brings us back to Sophia Eng's mission. As your next Miss Asian Global, I hope to break the stigma. Thank you. Once again, just heard there from KCBS's Rebecca Corral.
Back in studio once again with San Francisco psychiatrist Eli Merritt. He is the author of Suicide Risk in the Bay Area, a guide for families, physicians, therapists, and other professionals. And I bring up your book once again here because it also touches on a theme that we just heard a lot about, the stigma associated with mental health or struggles with mental health. And, you know, they raise a really important point, no matter what culture you're in, it may present in different ways, but there is very, very, very often a stigma associated with talking about the subject of mental health. What are your thoughts on how we get beyond that stigma and where, and where it comes from? Um, to start with where the stigma comes from, uh, I think throughout uh, history and most all religious traditions that uh, suicide has been controlled through shame and stigma, even to the point uh, back in the Middle Ages that uh, suicide which was considered self-murder, uh, was considered a worse sin than murder itself in some cases. So it's, a, it's not an uphill battle, but it's a strong battle to work against these, these strong forces of stigma and shame. What happens, as was described so well by Sophia Ng in this uh, report, is that the greater the degree of stigma and shame, the more it leads to avoidance. And again, no person is an island when we're suffering in particular is that time when we most need to reach out to others for help. And so the crusade, the effort to really destigmatize mental illness, depression, all, all of the illnesses and suicide and suicidal thinking is perhaps the most important thing that we're all trying to do together. All trying to do together. Yeah, exactly. And that is the focus of the program today. Uh, that program, one last time, by the way, is I'm Listening Bay Area. It's a program dedicated to examining mental health support in the Bay Area just ahead of National Suicide Prevention Week. We're going to head on now to our final story for this hour. Of course, one of the greatest challenges here in the Bay Area is the region's homelessness crisis. And unfortunately, those who are unhoused suffer much higher rates of mental illness. In fact, of the more than 8,000 people experiencing homelessness in Alameda County, Roughly half have mental health issues. But a pioneering program in the region is bringing psychiatric care to the unhoused by meeting them where they are. KCBS reporter Doug Sovereign hit the streets of Oakland to learn about the work of Alameda County's street health team. Registered nurse Jared Bundy packs up his car for his rounds through West Oakland. These are our outreach supplies. So in the backpacks. For the last year and a half, Bundy has been kids. practicing backpack medicine three days a week. Once a week, psychiatrist Dr. Iceland Bird goes too. We usually wear these purple hoodies, and so also, also known as the purple hoodie team. They visit the tent camps and other clusters of people living outside, bringing them basic necessities. Canola bars, shampoo. Um, and direct care and for mental health so and substance use. We do psychiatric stabilization and addiction medicine for people who are currently unhoused and living on, on the street in an encampments throughout Oakland. But first, Bundy has to gain their trust. It takes probably one to two months of like being in an encampment meeting folks and like as strange as it might sound is really like demonstrating them not police. Street Health is part of Alameda County's Health Care for the Homeless program. Bundy says many of the folks he helps didn't land on the street because of mental illness. 
They developed psychiatric and emotional issues after they got here. Life out here is stressful. You can never take your guard down. So the things that we see a lot of are like depression, anxiety, and PTSD, so post-traumatic stress. That is Preston Walker's diagnosis, depression and PTSD. He says life in these tent camps is not easy. You have a lot of violence at night. You have a lot of drug activity that goes on 24-7, okay, that can be disturbing if you're there, and there's nothing that you can do about it. He bounces around from the street to shelters and lately a residential hotel. I've been homeless since, off and on since 1992. 27 years, mostly unhoused. Oakland, Berkeley, Hayward, Fresno, Modesto, Merced, Atlanta, Georgia, I was homeless. Known on the street as Pastor Preston, Walker says most people experiencing homelessness just want what the rest of us take for granted. Basically, everybody wants keys. They want to have their own space. See, that's why there's so many tent encampments. Every tent is a household. And he says the street health team helps him toward that goal without judgment. All the staff members treat everybody with dignity and respect. There's no stigma at all on our disorders. None at all. We have some safe injection supplies Bundy here. brings his patients Narcan to reverse opioid overdose. Rampant drug use only aggravates people's troubles. One of the things that I really struggle with the most in this work are the mental health repercussions of methamphetamine. The potential for sort of it to either exacerbate or to induce psychotic disorders. Dr. Bird, who co-founded this program after her public psychiatry fellowship at UCSF, says turning to drugs is all too common on the street. When you experience that trauma and don't feel safe, it's just human nature to want to soothe yourself and to self-medicate. And that's where a lot of medications can come in. Bird is the only staff psychiatrist at the Lifelong Trust Health Clinic in downtown Oakland. She sees homeless patients at the clinic when they'll come. Some people, we meet them that day and they say, yes, I'm so ready. Let's do this right now. And they'll come to clinic and get signed up for all of the services. But many won't, so she goes to them, providing street corner therapy. It really is the same type of care that I would give to anyone who walked into the clinic. It's just out in the, in the streets and usually outside of their of their home and the encampment. Just like Bundy, she must establish a rapport before people will confide in her and talk through what they're experiencing, whether depression or thoughts of suicide. A lot of times people can't tolerate that much more than 15, 20 minutes, but I've also talked to someone for over an hour. So really, whatever level of engagement and however ready they are to share. Bird says many of the people she meets are grappling with emotions and feelings they've never had before, forced into crisis by economic hardship. I think there is the myth that a lot of people are experiencing homelessness originally had a, a primary um, behavioral health condition, and that's true for some people. But there's also just a lot of people who have never experienced homelessness before, who are out there on the streets for the first time because we we are in a housing crisis. And that can lead to mental health issues and substance use. Correct. We have wound care kits. Jared Bundy brings more than medicine to these streets. He also brings his own experience living there. Slept outside for periods of time and then ended up living in an SRO for about three years. And as we drive past a vast, sprawling camp near the old Amtrak station on Wood Street in West Oakland. This is approaching like 
developing nation status. He is overwhelmed by the magnitude of what he's trying to do. It's moving and powerful and traumatic. Pastor Preston says this kind of outreach can't reach everyone like him because many of those on the street will never let strangers, even well-meaning ones, in. They don't like the system, any part of the system, because they have been traumatized, abused by the system. See, and when you get abused and traumatized, you, you get very, very scared when the system comes. But he has embraced it and wishes he hadn't said no for months before finally coming into Bird's Clinic. I love here because I have my case manager, my psychiatrist, my psychologist, and my medical doctor all under the same roof. Bundy can count his success stories on one hand. He's helped five people so far find sobriety. Five people doesn't sound like a ton. That's literally meeting someone who's living on the sidewalk and getting them through a treatment program. For those five people, it's life change. And now the county's going to partner with other clinics to create four more teams similar to Dr. Bird's. I believe that we're all connected, that all humans have the same basic needs to want to feel belonged and cared for and loved. And we are in a crisis right now. And so even playing a small part is, is really satisfying. In Oakland, Doug Sovereign, KCBS. Coming up on the end of the program now, this again, I'm listening, Bay Area. All these stories that we're hearing today just showing again and again in many different ways that no matter where you are in the Bay Area, no matter what you're facing, there are many, many people out there who really do want to lend a helping hand. And we just heard that in, a, I think, a pretty powerful way from Doug's story right there. But that being said, it's important that we don't gloss over the fact that our mental health care system does have its challenges. Fragmented is the word uh, we've been using to describe it today. So last up on the program, I wanted to take some time to give our listeners some practical advice on how they can better navigate that system. Uh, Dr. Merritt, I mean, that really is a big focus of your work, is helping people navigate that fragmented system. Yes, that's right. It's it's an enormous challenge. The system is fragmented into, uh, in the Bay Area, a self-pay sector, another sector, which is the insurance sector, and then the last sector, which is community psychiatry or public psychiatry. And each of these different sectors have their unique challenges. So I think that act of searching, searching, searching for the right mental health care is one that most families find is taking them 10, 20, 30 hours. And uh, my book can help somewhat, or books like it, but unfortunately, it's worth that time to put in the search and really find that treatment team that fits one's geographic needs and also financial or insurance needs. That book, once again, Suicide Risk in the Bay Area, a Guide for Families, Physicians, Therapists, and Other Professionals. So a lot to reflect on there. And, and if you have the time, there is plenty of resources that you can sort of dig through in that book. But let's say that you're somebody who is genuinely concerned about a loved one having a mental health crisis right there in front of you. Seems like it could really escalate, get out of hand. Where, where, where can you go in that instance? In that instance, I think it's important to, uh, first and foremost, to differentiate between what a mental health crisis that might represent an emergency. And to understand that, an emergency really repre represents one sense that within the next number of minutes or hours that someone, in the case of suicide risk, might take their life. That is a time 
to call 911, just as we would other medical emergencies. That is a medical emergency. Um, in terms of uh, what to do with other types of crises, again, among the many resources that can be immediately helpful are crisis intervention services. Every county has one. Hotlines can be extremely helpful. For example, here in San Francisco, other areas have it as well, but we have the Comprehensive Child Crisis Service, which to my view is one of the best services in the country. So any parent of someone who is between the ages of uh, very youth and 17 years old recognize that Comprehensive Child Crisis Service in San Francisco, its entire purpose is to help you. So no matter what is going on in that circumstance, pick up the phone, make a call. They'll often come to your door. They provide guidance and help not only to the individual who's suffering a crisis, but I think quite critically, they provide guidance and support to parents as well. All right. Well, we are really coming up on the end of the program now, just a couple minutes left, but just want to reflect on a couple of points before we close out, because for all of these stories we brought you today, for all of these stories of mental health challenge, there was always a story of perseverance and resilience that went along with it. Remember, we heard at the top of the hour about Maria Menier, uh, founder of Bridgewatch Angels. Again, that's a volunteer group going out to the Golden Gate Bridge to speak to those who may be contemplating taking their own lives. Well, those volunteers have saved many, and Menier says remarkably, many of those who have been saved often feel compelled to give back themselves. You know, people that come to volunteer, which is very interesting, some of them are people that we did interventions with and they want to pay it forward. They got help uh, their, or their uh, situation that triggered their desire to come to the bridge and their lives has passed. And now they want to come back and volunteer and help someone else from, from such a tragic ending to their life. So that's a really, really remarkable, selfless, and courageous act. Remarkable, courageous, and uh, you were telling me before we turned these mics on, also sometimes healing to be able to provide that support yourself. I think it is uh, definitely healing. It's uh, been part of my healing journey to uh, learn to be a fellow traveler with those who are suffering. And uh, I think that's a very helpful message in the program on and I think what's so crucial, and I think has been emphasized here for those suffering from depression, hopelessness, possibly suicidal thoughts and feelings, is to know that you can get well. And I think quite critically that the suffering is not your fault. I think that's really one of the most important things to understand is depression, sadness, trauma, and grief, often a core component of turning that into depression is the feeling of this is my fault. Hmm. So there's hope out there. There's many pathways. Among, among the many pathways are medication pathways, psychotherapy pathways, spiritual pathways, and the pathway of building community in one's life. All right. And that's what we want to see more of around the Bay Area, building community, sustaining community. But we're going to have to close on that note for this program today. This has been I'm Listening Bay Area, part of a national campaign promoting mental health awareness just ahead of National Suicide Prevention Week. You can hear this program in its entirety by listening to the KCBS In-Depth podcast. That's available at kcbsradio.com. Or you can learn more about the campaign at imlistening.radio.com. I want to thank our guest, who once again has been San Francisco psychiatrist Eli Merritt. His very useful book is Suicide Risk in the Bay Area, a guide for families, physicians, therapists, and other professionals. Dr. Merritt, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Keith. 
And also want to give a special thank you to South Bay nonprofit Parents Helping Parents and the good people at the Steinberg Institute for helping with the program today. Finally, thank you all for listening. For KCBS, this has been I'm Listening Bay Area. I'm Keith Menconi. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.